Welcome, everybody, to the latest Truth and Consequences Zoomcast, and today I am really thrilled to be joined by Monica Potts, who is Zooming in from Clinton, Arkansas. She'll be talking about the vaccination challenges happening in her hometown and across the state of Arkansas. Uh, Monica previously wrote at the American Prospect. She uh, has written for the New Republic, New York Times. It has this great piece in The Atlantic that I sent around earlier today that everyone should read. She's a wonderful writer, and I'm really thrilled to to have her on today. So, Monica, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's it's a, it's, it's a real pleasure. Um, so I read your piece last week, and I just was I just was fascinated by it because you know you're you are writing as somebody not as a reporter sort of parachuting into to Arkansas, but as somebody who lives there. Someone's lived there. You grew up in Clinton, Arkansas, my understanding, and you moved back there in 2018. And so I think your experience is a little bit different from other people who sort of covered this story. And you wrote about the challenges uh, in getting people vaccinated. And can you just talk a little bit, just to start off, sort of what your experience has been as far as in your community with vaccinations? Uh, my, Arkansas has the third lowest rate of vaccinations, I believe, in the country, one of the highest hospitalization rates in the country. So just a little bit about the experience in quarantine, the experience of the past 18 months, and what it's been like since the vaccines became more ubiquitous over the past couple of months? Mm-hmm. Well, I, in the beginning of the pandemic, um, life here changed really suddenly, quickly, like it did everywhere. But when pe- then people started to ease up very, very quickly. Um, people sort of were expecting the plague. They were expecting to see people hospitalized in the uh, hallways of the local hospital on ventilators. And sort of when that didn't happen, people sort of stopped believing it was a threat. And so we really started to return back to normal um, and there was pressure to return back to normal last summer. And I think that that was, there was some amount of just natural protection. We live far apart. If schools and churches aren't open, people don't have many places to mix indoors. We have a lot of outdoor spaces, a lot of outdoor activities. And I think that just provided some amount of natural protection for people. Um, we had, we did have a bad surge last fall. Um, and schools remained closed last fall, but then this winter, um, after the Biden administration was started, especially, um, this, the governor lifted, um, restrictions on restaurants. They could operate at full capacity again. He lifted mask mandates in the, um, March. The legislature in its last session banned masked mandates, mask mandates and other mandates. Um, and, um, uh, he ended the pandemic unemployment assistance programs in June. So we were really acting like the pandemic was over and life hadn't changed as drastically as it had for people in cities anyway, in the first place. Right. Um, and then uh, at the same time, you know, we started to, we opened up vaccinations for everyone in April before that a select number of people could get vaccinated. And I knew people who were trying to get vaccinated technically earlier than they could. So agricultural workers could get vaccinated started in February or March. I'm not quite sure. And so people were going in like, I have a goat. And so the pharmacist would let them in if they had like a goat. (laughs) And so, you know, everybody who wanted a vaccine rushed in right away. And then we were really stuck at this 30% rate from April to pretty recently, it started to tick up, but not that much. And so there was just a period of two months from April to June, July, when we were looking at the vaccination rate, not budging at all, hardly. And that was very frustrating. And what do you, so what, you know, the, the sort of, I think the dominant political narrative is that this is political, right? This is, this is, this is a, 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 a offshoot of our intense polarization and people are not doing this for political reasons. Has that been, your experience, or do you think there's a little more going on here than just politics? Um, I do think there's more going on. I think that politics is a very important component. And so there are just a group of loud people who tend to overlap with Trump supporters um, who believe the vaccines are an experiment, that they're dangerous, that they shouldn't, we shouldn't get them, that they were only approved on an emergency basis, that, um, COVID was never as bad as people said, you know, that all the conspiracy theories, you could just line them up and they would probably say yes to everyone. That is a very vocal and sizable minority here. But if you had asked me to guess, you know, how many people would get vaccinated based on just looking at those kinds of tendencies, I would have guessed we would be at a 50 to 60% vaccination right now. So it's just, that gives you a sense of where, how many of those people there are. And it's a serious problem, but there's just a bigger 
portion in the middle, maybe not even bigger, but just a sizable portion in the middle of people who just aren't sure about getting the vaccine. They're a little worried about side effects. Some of those side effects are legitimate. And um, they, nothing communicated to them that it was an emergency. Maybe they're young. They don't know anyone who died of COVID. They're not scared of getting COVID themselves. They have trouble getting off work. Work has returned. They can't call out sick. They're shift workers and they don't have two days off a, a, a week in a, in a row to get vaccinated. I spoke to somebody who's a manager at a local store here. He hasn't had a single day off work since April because they've been so busy. So, um, so fitting it into your life is a challenge. And if what you hear mostly from people is that the vaccine is dangerous. And then on the other side, you don't have anybody saying, no, the vaccine is good. I really want you to get it, which we don't. There's a vacuum there um, among state and local leadership. Then overcoming those daily challenges are just less of a priority for you. And I think that's a really important undernoted complication. It is interesting. I mean, it's something we don't often think about. I mean, because, you know, how hard is it if, if you, if you, in your community, you wanted to go out right now and get vaccinated, how hard would it be to do? Is there a place that you can go? Is there a drugstore? Is there a clinic you can go to? Yeah, there are three walk-in clinics, but they're in population centers. Two of them are in Clinton, where I live. It's the county seat. It's very easy for me to go because I work for myself. If I get tired, I can take a nap. If I, I, I went in March and April for my two doses of Moderna, I had a pretty significant fever for two days after both shots, you know, and I could sleep all day and it wasn't a big deal. Um, if I were a single mom who lived in a trailer in the very farthest Western part of this County and I didn't have childcare for my kids and my husband was off working somewhere most of his time, right. uh, if, I, if I had a husband, then, you know, that is a much bigger thing. That's an hour long trip each way. I have to do something with my kids in the meantime. If I feel sick afterwards, who's going to take care of my kids? Right. If I'm a shift worker and I don't have two days off in a row or I don't have work hours off during the week, I can't go get a shot without asking for work off. If I'm you know, low on the totem pole, I'm unlikely to feel comfortable asking my manager for that time off. Um, so, you know, those kinds of challenges do make it harder for people. There are also a number of elderly people who don't have access to a regular working car. In my, among the people who I know personally, the people who overcame those challenges were people whose doctors told them to do it. They said, you know, you really need to get this shot. And so they, they had this pressure and they arranged. There are a couple of local doctors who until recently were not telling their patients to get vaccinated. Um, and so <laughs> that's also an underknown and I think under investigated wow. yeah. that you have people in the healthcare field telling people, either telling people not to get vaccinated or not being that blatant, but not telling, not advocating for it. And so that really makes a difference. Yeah. I have to think it makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so what you're suggesting in a way, and this is something I've suspected for a while, is that persuasion is all well and good, but pressure kind of works too. I mean, that, that if you really push people, uh, I mean, you, you, you obviously the example of, of doctors telling people to do it. And that's, you know, that's a, an informed elite, if you will, who is sort of saying it is people that listen to their doctor. But, you know, this question about sort of vaccine mandates has come up and I've sort of suspected for a while, this sort of dovetails what you were saying that you have a core group of people who just are not going to get vaccinated. That for political reasons, I'm not going to do it. They're just going to, they're going to forever just say, I'm not this the whole time, the whole process, they're going to say, no, not for me. But you've a lot of people who are going to say, you know what? I don't really want to do it. I don't have time. I got this, I got that. But, it's, but if I have to, because of, okay, I can't go to a concert or I can't go to a movie or I can't go to a restaurant, I might consider doing it. Is that your sense that there are a good, a good chunk out there who, if you just put a little bit of pressure on them, will get vaccinated? Absolutely. I think if their employers mandated it, they would do it. They would just fold and go do it. Um, You know, if there were any sort of, like if their movement were curtailed in any way, they would just get over themselves and do it. So there does need to be a little bit of pressure. It wouldn't hurt to also have incentives like two paid days off work. So people don't have to worry about it and they can just, they know they can just sleep um, the day after. So um, yeah, the, this is really first and foremost, a failure of leadership, I think, because there should have been a time when state and local and even to a greater extent, national leadership said, we have to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. That is going to take making rules about vaccinations, (laughs) you know, and, and I think that's what's been missing. 
Yeah, I, listen, I agree with 100%. I mean, I, you know, I have been sort of very frustrated with um, actually with the Biden administration a little bit on this one. I, I think that they have been fearful of political backlash, and I get why that is. Um, but they've not taken the steps until now to really pressure people to get vaccinated. And, you know, the one that I get that frust- uh, fixated on is that federal workers until yesterday were not required to be vaccinated and that the military wasn't required to be vaccinated. Um, a third of the military, this was a, as of a week or two ago, had not been vaccinated. Um, and I think, you know, dismissing early on the idea of vaccine passports seems to me to have been a mistake, that this should have been from early on. And, and look, I get it's hard to do when people are actually getting vaccinated, which was happening, obviously, in, in April and May before getting at, at pretty good rates. But once it was clear things were slowing down, it seemed that another tragedy was in order. And I feel like I feel we waited too long to do that. And and it seems to be you're seeing the same thing, what you're seeing in Arkansas. Yeah, I think we waited too long, partly because now there's just going to be a different reaction to it than if they had done it right away and it had been part of the framework right. of reaching a goal by July 4th. Um uh, and and also sort of the way that we approached it sort of treated the pandemic as if it was over before it was, okay. you know, and so people lost a sense of urgency about that. But more importantly here, especially um, the Delta variant is just here and we're just going to see it spread and it's possible it'll spread and burn itself out before we get to any kind of level of vaccination that would stop it on its own. Um, you know, when you look at the data, there's always a two week lag between sort of like exposure and hospitalization. Our, hus- our hospitalizations and case numbers are just skyrocketing. Right at now. least their hospitalization rate is third highest in the country right now in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we've already gotten lots of messages that ambulance services have slowed. Hospitals are full. The hospitals that we normally transport people to in Little Rock, which is where what normally happens is we kind of triage here and then send people to Little Rock, which is an hour and a half away. Um, those hospitals are full and not taking transfers in a lot of cases. I personally know one, so know someone who separately had a neurological condition and started having seizures and he couldn't get an ICU bed in the state. It took forever. Um, and so we're already starting to see those kinds of ripple effects that they warned us about. Right. I think that's the thing people misunderstand about, about the, the, the challenge for, for the healthcare system is that that's the question of being able to take care of COVID patients, taking care of everybody. If every ICU bed is taken up by a COVID patient, that means that the person, you, you, your friend can't get uh, an ICU bed, can't get admitted to a hospital, can't get treated. Um, so yeah, the ripple effect in this has to be huge. And I imagine um, in Arkansas, which I assume, I, I should say I know for sure, but I think the uninsured rate is, is relatively high in Arkansas uh, because I believe Medicare expansion has not been, and Medicare expansion passed in Arkansas. Yeah, we have a Medicare extension. We have this weird private option system. So, but we still do have a low, um, a low, it's hard to get traditional Medicaid, Medicare, uh, not Medicare, Medicaid. Medicaid. Um, Medicaid. yeah, but you do get what's the private, the called the private option. And it's just this really hodgepodge confusing system. So I think that a lot of people don't bother who might qualify. Um, but we do have a low uninsured rate. And also we just don't have, um, kind of the same level of relationship with doctors mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people have. So um, are people relying somewhat on the ER for, uh, or the hospital for, for healthcare more so than they would be in places where the insurance rates are higher? Yeah. And there's just also this kind of tradition of taking care of things on your own until an, an emergency. I, I, um, there's yeah. also a kind of a bigger move here and I haven't measured it and I haven't found a lot about it, but there has been an anti-vaccination movement in the evangelical community for some years. Um, this idea that God predates, gave you COVID, you mean? predates COVID. Um, so even as the anti-vaccine movement kind of like flamed and burned out in liberal communities across the country to some degree. Right. Um, the kind of hippie people we think of being anti-vaccine. Right. Um, right. Uh, it's after it started to kind of die down there, it spread to the evangelical community. And it's kind of a very similar, like the natural world is better. God gave you your, God built your body. He didn't make any mistakes. Right. You know, your yeah. immunity is better. And so we had already started to have a few measles, out, measles outbreaks in um, different parts of the state. So, that is also kind of a countervailing force that doctors are just, and, and so, some of that comes from a very understandable place, which is the opioid epidemic. Right. Um, you know, and so there's some 
suspicion of doctors and medicine and the pharmaceutical industry that is completely and totally understandable. So Right, right. I mean, I, I, I hear that. I mean, I, I do think you do have obviously some legitimate reasons for people to be suspicious about this. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we are months into the vaccines. We've seen how successful they, they are. And it does feel as though, I, I, I mean, this is a personal feeling. I've kind of run out of, of sympathy for excuses at this point. Like, I think <laughs> I had them a few months ago. I think I've run out of it at this point because, and I mean, and this may be a little bit selfish and I'll, I'll acknowledge it's a little bit selfish. I feel as though th- that people not getting vaccinated is holding all of us back and, and holding me back. It's holding, you know, as all of us back, my kids back from returning to normalcy. And I, and I feel frustrated by that. And I, and I don't think I'm alone in feeling this way. And I imagine that you must feel it even more acutely, uh, being in a, in a place where vaccination rates are, you know, in the 36%, I think the people are fully vaccinated. It's got to be much more frustrating. How does that affect you as far as your interactions with your neighbors and your community? You said something in the piece I thought was really interesting that jumped out to me that, you know, how do we, what, what does it mean as some of our neighbors, I'm quoting you here, have been reluctant to act in the public good? And what does that augur for our sense of community now or whenever this is over? That's a great question. And I, I'm curious, what, what, talk a little bit more about that. How, how do you think this, what happens going forward as far as you, your experience with your, in your own community, knowing that people did not do to protect you and others around you? Yeah. Um, well, on a personal level, sort of, I have a group of cousins I stopped speaking with a couple of years ago. <laughs> and I saw elsewhere that one of them is not getting vaccinated. And my personal response to that kind of immediately is not a very nice one, which is like, fine, just get sick. You know, I, I, don't I think a lot of people have that, have that reaction. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, so that's frustrating on that level, but I think that sort of the deeper frustration for me personally, both as a journalist, somebody who, you know, went to college far away and sort of made it my life's mission to find information and communicate it to other people as a journalist has been, um, has been the impervious sort of layer between me and those people that, incomplete like the complete inability to process new information to accept facts to trust sources of authority that is a very very long-running project on the right to cut away the ties and the trust that people have to politicians to um, colleges and universities to centers of authority except for the church and except for what you get from your own kind of neighbor and neighborhood and so that is something that I don't know how to surmount. And that's the thing that that's sort of, if I leave here, that's why it'll be because I can't, I can't, I can understand differences of opinion. I can accept differences of sort of like thinking what's bet of the best solution for the problem. That's something that is part of life, but I have a really hard time accepting the inability to concede when facts are facts. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, I feel, I feel this way for years. And it's one of the biggest frustrations about, I think, what we do as journalists is, you know, I always say to people, look, you, you don't like my opinion. Fine. All right. I put the facts out there. I, I'm an empiricist. I try to, you know, back it up with data. You know, if you don't like my opinion, okay. You know, but I can't help what happens once you read my opinion. But when you literally say the facts that I have put in this piece or I'm, I'm using, are wrong or fake news. I don't quite know how to, as you said, surmount that. It feels like an impenetrable wall when basic facts are, you can't even agree on that. And I, I, I think about this, like I was on, oh God, I did like this Fox News thing, like, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago or something. It was a long time ago. And, and there was, it was something about torture. And I made some argument, I made some point about it. And they're like, well, how do you know that's true? And I said, well, it was an article in the New York Times. Oh, it's the New York Times. That can't be true. That's just fake news. This is pretty, pretty Trump fake news. And I thought to myself, how, if that's, if you can't read that and see the facts and understand it's true, just dismiss it being, oh, it's the New York Times. How do I communicate with you? And this must be a, a daily challenge for you, I would imagine, in, in being a reporter in a place where facts are in dispute constantly. Yeah, it, it is. It is every day and it's, it's really frustrating. And it's also, it also makes me just incredibly sad. Um, and it's, it's a really, a, it's a huge loss because, um, there's this kind of tendency. I think people think that people 
come to decisions on their own and sort of like come to philosophies and come to ideologies on their own, but they're very influenced by the people around them. And so if this is the prevailing notion here, and it's really just about, it's about everything. It's about the way that people here, that Arkansas has a very low tax rate and our county in particular has a very low tax rate for both it has actually a pretty high sales rate because that's how it's been making up for the loss of property tax revenue. But we have a very low property tax rate, but people think it's high and they want to cut it to nothing. And and this is when you're looking at, you can actually physically see the things that it's paying for, like the library and the sheriff's department. And these things are right in front of you and you know these people and you know the people whose salaries you're paying. You grew up with them and you still think that all government is bad. And it's like, this isn't the government. This is the person that you grew up with and went to school with, you know, I don't understand how you can sort of generalize it like that. So here's the thing I'm curious about, because, you know, uh, I've been writing about Trump for (laughs) six years. I I mean, I'm sure you have as well, or some variation writing about Trump. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have take for granted that there's going to be stuff like this, where people just are going to dispute basic facts. The vaccination thing, to me, it, it I shouldn't be hard to process it in a way, right? It's in a many, as you said, I think it's sort of a, a natural evolution of what we've seen on the right for several years now. And yet I find the story almost impossible to get my head around. It, and, and I, and it's a weird feeling. I can often understand, you know, having, having been to so many Trump rallies and talking to Trump supporters and listening to their, what they have to say, I kind of understand the, the reasoning and the logic. I, it, that there is reason and logic behind it, but I kind of get it. With this, the vaccination thing, and especially the behavior of, of elites, as you mentioned earlier, it, it, you can see I, I'm struggling to find the words to describe how frustrating this is. And, and I'm curious, your experience, do you think we've crossed, you know, a Rubicon here? Have we gotten to some, some alternative, you know, uh, point in, in our, in our discourse that this is, this is like really the, 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 I don't know how to put it, but the, the, um, the apogee of, of facts are, are partisan things or, or facts are constantly in dispute or fake news or all of this sort of rhetoric on the right. Is this sort of the, the peak moment? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would have guessed that literally seeing people die would have, um, been the turning point for people, but it's even worse than that. It's, it's, um, you have to literally see a person that you love die, <laughs> you know, huh. and even, even then there's this, this kind of fatalism. Um, and some of that also goes back to sort of evangelical religious thought here, which is that this sense of predestin- predestination, which is that when it's your time, it's your time. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's something I've been hearing all my life, but you know, I will say also it's, it's just definitely gotten worse since I was a kid because when I was a kid, there were, countervailing forces and there were good people here who you could turn to and there were sort of pathways to sort of thinking in an alternative way than the majority and more of a, also a sense of community and a sense of caring. Um, and that's been obliterated for a number of reasons that have to do with being particular to rural America. And so I, I, I kind of think about this a lot. Like it may be that this is the end for some places, you know, that, Mm. you know, everyone else has left (laughs) everyone who wants to leave leaves and moves. And um, the people who are left are sort of on this like nihilistic train (laughs) to nowhere. (laughs) I mean, do you find it difficult to to cultivate a community of of sort of like-minded people in, in a place like this? I mean, is it hard to find people, like you, people who, who share your values and your sort of worldview? Well, it's not as hard as you think. When my, my partner, uh, Samir came with me and when we were moving, you know, I told him, so my town has 2,500 people in it and it's the biggest town in the county. Um, and I told him, you know, 2,500 people is more people than you know. <laughs> like, yes, that's a small town, but that's a lot of people actually. Um, and it's always been a split of about 70, 30. And so it's kind of, it shouldn't be surprising in retrospect that the number of people who got vaccinated, vaccinated early got stuck at 30 because that's about who voted for Biden. And that's about who, you know, and if you, even if you go back to sort of the civil war, those are the people who didn't want to secede is that 30% chunk of people. That's always kind of been 
the balance. And, um, and so 30% of that number of people, it's not hard to, um, it's not hard to find people who, you know, and you like, and you can have dinner parties with, but the question is sort of, it's like, you, you have to live with those other people. Right. <laughs> how, is, how is that experience for you? I mean, do you feel, are you able to put aside the politics and, cause I, I, you can't. Interesting. Talk about that a little bit. Not anymore. It's too cruel. The politics is, is too cruel. If it's a matter of talking about, um, if it's a matter of talking about sort of what the tax rate should be or whether and how we get people into jobs and whether community college should be free, I can have those arguments, but I can't have arguments about whether, um, people seeking asylum coming to the border should be turned back to a place where they're going to get killed. I, I can't have those arguments with people and I don't. And so, you know, I cut off huge chunks of my family during the, um, Black Lives Matter protests last summer hmm. because I just couldn't stand, I and mean, this is going to sound snobby, but you know, people who, white people who have never left their town of 2,500 people <laughs> telling me about the, the experience of, of black Americans in cities around the country. I, that, I wasn't going to listen to that. Was, that was a bridge too far for you. Yeah, it wasn't useful. It wasn't, it was cruel and stupid and I couldn't do it. <laughs> I, I, I do think that there's something about what you said. I, I, I think with us a lot too, because, you know, p- political disputes in the past uh, were so value laden and they are now. I mean, there is something, and I wrote about this uh, last year, that if you're supporting Trump or supporting, you know, Trumpism or you're, you're subscribing to a set of values that I think a lot of people like you and I just find abhorrent when it comes to things on immigration, things on racial issues, on, on issues related to the LGBTQ community, to, to, to women's rights. I mean, all of these things that, that I think define me not as a Democrat or, or as a political person, but just as a person, you know, that to support Trump sort of in a way is in conflict with that. It's very difficult, I think, to, to bridge that kind of a gap, you know, and I, 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 I hear what you're saying that it's, it's, it's not like in the past when you could say, okay, well, you know, you, you voted for Romney, you voted for Bush, like we don't agree, but okay, we can still, still be friends, but it's harder with Trump. I, I don't say it's impossible, but I think it's harder. Um, and I, and I worry about that divide because then you don't really have, you really do have two Americas in that situation, it feels like. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, the people I know who are good people who perhaps are more conservative have already had that argument with themselves and we're anti-Trump. So, you know, like, um, it's not as though there aren't any conservatives that I'm friends with, but I'm not the rabid Trump supporters. And I also think people sort of also misunderstand a lot of that too, but, you know, a small town in Arkansas that is, um, more poorer than the rest of the country. People have a sense it's all poor and it's not, there are business owners here and there are people here who own huge slots of land. Um, and there are people here who run things and they have some amount of power. Um, those people were the loudest Trump supporters in a lot of instances. And so I just, you know, I'm just telling you right now, no one has to have sympathy for that person. <laughs> no one has to have sympathy for someone who owns three businesses in town and wants to pay his workers less than $11 an hour, which is yeah, I don't think that. I definitely don't. Yeah, no. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's just a more complicated experience on the ground. And so, um, so I have a lot of sympathy for sort of the, the need that, that's here, but for the political opinions expressed, I think that people should have to, ha- there are consequences for your moral and political stances. And, you know, I'm not going to just pretend to be friends with you. And I also think that that rhetoric that like you still owe people affection when their political choices and their political stances and who they vote for would literally dehumanize you and the people that you love. You you don't have to, those people can't demand affection from you. And that's something that I've experienced a lot with younger people here who are like sort of um, friends of mine who are more liberal and more progressive and more on the left who are really having rifts in their families and childhood friends who, you know, they grew up with and are still close to physically this idea that they have to maintain those relationships. And it's very damaging and it's very hard for them. And 
you know, I'm just like, no, this is, this is the language of an abuser that <laughs> you have to maintain your, your love for them. So you, you moved back there in, in 2018, correct? Mm-hmm. And so you have, you have family there. Now is the rift um, between you and the rest of your family, or is there just some parts of your family and other parts of your family? In other words, are you close to some members, not close to others? Yeah. Close to some, not close to others. Yeah. 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 And is that something that, for example, I mean, that is, they're just like, okay, those, those, that's the other side of the clan, right? We, we, don't, we don't talk to them yeah. on our side. <laughs> there are two different Thanksgivings. Is it, is it like, yeah, that? yeah. Well, and I have my mom's family and to some extent, um, to some extent there had been kind of a, a distance anyway, because I have been gone and also, um, you know, the generation above me has passed. And so, um, you know, I was always closer to my mom's side of the family in some respects, but I did come back and, and think that I would be closer to my dad's side of the family. I would try to get close to them again. And, and I just abandoned that project. And my mom's side of the family is also has, there's like chunks that are here and there and depends on who I'm close to. Right. I mean, but I, I'm, cl- I'm closer to my mom's side of the family. We don't have those kinds of rifts as much. Um, and my mom is also very liberal. Um, but my, um, also, I should also say to my dad's family, I can't even tell you how many cousins I have. So it's a lot of people. <laughs> okay. So it's very easy to just <laughs> spin some off. Yeah. <laughs> something I, I have never been able to relate to because I, I have a very small family. Uh, you know, uh, my mom was an only child. Uh, my, my father only had, only had one sister and a lot of our family lives overseas. So, you know, it was just like one of these things where everyone kind of agreed politically. And so I've never had, had this, it's always hard for me to relate a little bit to what it's like to be in a family with people who don't agree with you politically. People always say about you argue over Thanksgiving. I'm like, I never had that experience, you know, and mm-hmm. we argue about other things. We are sports. Maybe we wouldn't argue over politics and it's, or we, we, uh, we'd argue, but we still agree on most of it. Um, it's, it's an unusual experience. But I think for many Americans, it's not, it's not, it, especially between generations. It's not unusual. It's sort of, it's often the norm. I imagine a place like, like Arkansas where I, I don't know if this is key, but I imagine there's more younger people are more progressive there. I would imagine that's usually the case in, in, in most communities. And so is that, do you have a kind of generational divide a little bit in places like Arkansas where you are? But yeah, particularly for younger people who go away. And so there is that, um, also divide the younger people who go away and live in. They usually don't go to DC or New York, but they go to like, um, Little Rock and Fayetteville and the other college towns yeah. around. And so there is some, yeah, there's some divide there. And then, you know, I spoke to a lot of people for the Atlantic piece and they ended, it ended up not making it in there. People who had gone away. And when they came, when they tried to come back at any point in the past year and a half, it felt like they were visiting a post-apocalyptic world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where that, you know, they came from places where everybody was wearing masks. People were being careful about distancing right. and, and they get vaccinated and they finally come back and they come back and they find unvaccinated people packing into churches. We've had a, we've had a bunch of church outbreaks and, um, and it's just that it's very hard to process. It's this huge gap in experience. Listen, I had this experience uh, back in February because, you know, I obviously live in New York. We, I, since April of, of 2020, people have been wearing masks almost exclusively. Uh, and it's, it was almost unheard of at that point to see someone on the street not wearing a mask. Um, and then I went down to Florida for uh, about a week and I was in um, near, near Sarasota, uh, pretty red county. And no one was wearing masks outside. And it, it does, it really throws you for a loop because you're, you sort of have gotten used to some kind of a norm. And then all of a sudden it's completely, it's like a different world completely. I have to imagine it's very, very discombobulating. Um, I did want to ask you one thing about the politics of this because I, I was curious about something. I, I, I've been under the impression that Governor Hutchison had been doing a relatively okay job of course promoting vaccines. Um, but I did see this clip of about a week or so ago with Sarah Huckabee Sanders who's running for governor. Uh, in uh, in Arkansas, who said that if she's elected, there'll be no mass mandates, no, va- no vaccine mandates. So this proudly, and I, I sort of thought to myself, like her slogan is kind of "elect me and I will kill you." I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like a little bit. But do you give a little bit of credit? I mean, have there been folks in Arkansas like Hutch- Governor Hutchinson who have been responsible on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I you know I would say that Hutchinson did a pretty good job for the most part, most of the time. Okay. Um, I think, I mean, comparatively, um, 
you know, I think he lifted the mask mask mandates too early. I think the shutdown should have lasted longer. But looking at the numbers here, I can understand sort of why he made the decisions that he made when he made them. And there was a huge amount of pressure from the right and the business community. Um, And, you know, I would say I, I used to say when I moved back here in the beginning that the slogan for Arkansas should be Arkansas, not as bad as you think. (laughs) <laughs> which is like just kind of generally where we are on some things. Like it's where it's, we're not always the worst. Like sometimes <laughs> we, are, right. you okay. know, <laughs> but, but um I think that events, you know, he, he, he was pretty good in the beginning of the pandemic, especially using his emergency powers. The legislature took that away from him and right. people resisted right. him. And so a lot of people think he's like a rhino, Republican in name only. Hutchison's been around a long time in Arkansas politics. He, right. in the wilderness, when we were still a democratic state and he emerged in that time. So I think that he's just a little more moderate than somebody like Sanders. Is. It's interesting. I mean, you, I assume Sanders is the front runner to, to win the governor's race there. I mean, I, I how concerned are you about someone like her being elected elected governor as far as what it will do to the state? Um, she's probably going to be elected. She's still very popular. Her popularity tracks pretty closely with Trump's popularity, which remains high. Right. She also is the daughter of a former governor who remains right. pretty popular. Um, you know, how concerned am I? That's kind of hard to measure because I don't know how much influence a governor really has. Right. Um, because the pandemic is going to end eventually. So she can say that she's not going to have a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate. I don't know what that will mean then because she's not going to be elected until 2022 if she is right. elected. So, um, so I'm not sure, but I, what it, what I am worried about sort of is just who I live around, the kind of people who would elect her. <laughs> and, uh, that's something that's been harder for me to reconcile. On the one hand, you know, there are some things that about living in the Northeast that frustrate me. Um, and it's expensive. And we had a kind of a fantasy about coming out here and living in the woods and going off grid and just being left alone. <laughs> and that is still kind of tempting, but I just don't think it's possible because at the end of the day, we do live in a society. You know, even here. That's what I wanted to kind of ask you. I mean, because you said yeah. earlier, do you think that when you moved down, I, I, I was going to ask you why you moved down there. I'm, I'm interested in what you, what you said. I mean, do you think that you can stay there with, with, I mean, it's hard to, to believe to say this because of the politics of, of, of where we are in this country. Do you feel as though you're, you do better job? It would be better if you live somewhere where more people agree with you politically. Yeah, that's a hard, I mean, I think probably eventually I, I also personally do not stay in one place for very long in general in my life. I've always kind of moved around. We intended it to be a short-term thing and it turned out long. I'm working, I'm finishing a book. It turned out longer than we planned. Um, and uh, my mom's ready to retire. So maybe when we figure that out, we'll all move together somewhere. Right. Like Vermont. I don't know. <laughs> the whole opposite, I guess, of Arkansas. Right? Yeah, yeah. So before you go, I want to mention, because you did say this earlier that you have a Substack newsletter called Welcome Home. Uh, mm-hmm. subscribe to. I, as I said before, I've read your stuff for years, and, and it's it's always great. So I'm sure the, the newsletter is fantastic. Well, I didn't know about it until you mentioned me, so I'm going to become a subscriber as well. But you're working on a book. Tell me about that. What you're what you're what you're working on? Yeah, it's um it's a memoir about my childhood best friend and I. Um, and uh, we both grew up here, and we were both very similar when we were kids, and we were like sisters. Um, she was kicked out of high school two weeks before we were supposed to graduate. Um, and then I went to college and moved away, and she didn't. And it's sort of about the journey that we took as as friends. Um, and then separately is about sort of the differences in life expectancy in different education levels in the country um, that's been expanding and also like geographic inequality and the decline of rural America. It's just kind of a window into that through our relationship. That sounds fascinating. And, you know, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago because I I find it to be one of the more depressing, you know, stories that's, that I guess in a coverage, you know, I wrote a book a couple of years ago talking about all the sort of, that we play down the threats we face at home. We focus on foreign threats and ignore the threats that we have here, whether it's um, gun violence, whether it's opiate epidemic. And one fact that just I kept coming back to is that America's life expectancy continued to decline year after year. For three straight years, it declined. And this was before the pandemic. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously much worse in red state America. It's it. There's no question about it. Um, and you meant you referenced this a little bit, and I think it's one of this. You know, the saddest things about this is that this distrust of government, distrust of science, sorts of, of elites, is actually, and the polarization that it creates, is actually killing people. Literally, mm-hmm. it's actually leading to shorter life expectancies in places like Arkansas and red states around the country. Um, it's it's a, it's an enormous tragedy, and one I think you meant you mentioned a little earlier, one that is. The, the, the flames are being fanned by political leaders, you know, by media elites, by the Tucker Carlson's of the world who are playing on some people's resentment in a way that polarizes us, but also really contributes to poor health outcomes, as crazy as that might seem. I mean, is that certainly, I, I, I assume that's been your experience uh, the last couple of years in Arkansas. Yeah. And also sort of, um, I think that, one of the things that matters a lot is this rhetoric of personal responsibility, yes. which yes. has become sort of the the overarching message on the right to the extent that there's no such thing as communal responsibility. Um, and And that is incredibly destructive in all these big and small ways. That's, you know, really, really, really hard to see. Um, you know, we almost, our county almost didn't pass a, um, attacks for the fire department. And so you just wouldn't, some places just would not have had fire departments. And just oh. sort of thinking about, I mean, they ended up passing it, but just thinking about what that would have meant, you know, it's just, yeah. we all would have been on our own in the wilderness with our own sprinkler systems, I guess. <laughs> or yeah, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. that's where you are, right? I mean, you have that, that, that's how it has this sort of destructive impact. I mean, and that's, just, that's a, and that's what I even thought about, but yeah, that's, you know, not having social services is actually bad for people. Yeah. Like to a very extreme degree. Um, and, and part of it is that we already don't have as many social services as, you know, we don't have trash pickup. People burn their own trash in their backyard. And so you just see sort of the ways in which that degrades health, degrades a sense of community degrade your own sense of living in the environment and leads to kind of this very aloneness that I think is really destructive in a way that we can't really quite measure. And that's when you look at the studies of declining life expectancy, they sort of, and they always kind of say, there's something hopeless about this community, <laughs> these communities where people are dying. And, um, and that's part of what it is. It's, it's not like a mechanism you can measure in social science. It's only something you can kind of feel and see. So. Yeah, this, your point about personal responsibility is one that really resonates with me because I, I cannot think of an expression that I hate more than that. Um, because it really does sort of obviate you all responsibility to those around you. It sort of says like you're, you, I don't want to wear a mask. I'm fine. And it ignores that your behavior can have consequences for other people. There's a reason why this, 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 uh, subtack is called truth and consequences because, you know, the consequences actually do matter. Uh, and we should, we have to think about how our actions affect other people. And, and when you have an ethos for responsibility, you don't think in those terms. You just think about yourself. You're very selfish. And you said something before that I, I wanted to, to also come, come back to this idea that people don't take it seriously until someone around them gets sick. This is uh, around on COVID. And I, I, I find that sort of incomprehensible. And you made a point earlier, I, uh, in the piece, you made a point about you didn't have the, the, the ambulances. You didn't have the, the, the same kind of, you know, outward uh, elements of COVID, right? It was happening more quietly in, in your community. In, in New York, you hear the ambulances all the time, right? I mean, you, you drive by a hospital and you can see ambulances lined up. You can see the outdoor tents and stuff for people. Um, so people maybe didn't, didn't feel it. But we've lost 600,000 Americans. You would think that would be enough to convince people they should take it seriously. It doesn't have to happen to someone in their family for them to realize this is a real problem. But I wonder if that responsibility ethos influences that, that viewpoint. I think so. Yeah. That there must have been something about those people's lives where they, nobody would ever say this, but they must have kind of deserved to die in some way. They were unhealthy or they didn't take care of themselves or they already had a disease they shouldn't have gotten. Um, we did have, we've had, we've had two recent deaths. So now we have a total of 26 deaths in this county. And that's, um, I can't even really tell you exactly what percentage that is, but for 26 people to die here of one thing is just almost unheard of, you know, in the course of that would be like a plane smashing into a church with the choir practicing. That's just like not 
something. That's a huge number of people for this area. And, um, you know, we didn't, we also didn't have, we still haven't had sort of like a, a public roll call of who we've lost or like a remembrance or a COVID memorial. And so it allows people to think of them as separate deaths. And some of those who passed were quite old. And so, you know, I think it allowed people to think, well, it was just their time. Right. And without, without sort of considering the quality of their end of life or whether they might've had another five years, which can make a huge difference. <laughs> you know? right. And so I think, and, and also, especially, you know, their families, maybe they weren't ready to a former teacher of mine who was 71 passed and 71 is very young, but 71 is not young here. You know, people die young here. And so I think that the, the, the ways that people process those deaths are probably different as well. Um, I just want to uh, thank, thank you for that. I just want to uh, ask if anyone wants to any questions, anyone wants to open this up um, to, I'm happy to take any questions. Usually you want to put it in the chat. Um, I know Ian Zimmerman put up a, an interesting face, a, a post from a friend of his in Arkansas uh, about a friend who was vaccinated and saying how happy they were, even though they were diagnosed with COVID. Um, uh, and she said, um, beg me to let everyone in my circle know that the vaccines will keep you out of the hospital and alive. I think it's a good point, by the way, to remember that the vaccine doesn't just um, you can still get COVID, but you may end up just not being being sick for a few days, but you won't die. I think that's the most important thing of all. It's not a promise you're not going to get sick, it's that you're not going to die. Uh, if anybody wants to throw out a question, please, um, uh, in the chat, or you can jump in on the video. Um, the last thing I guess I'll say, you, your point about the remembrance, I mean, I feel like even in New York, we haven't had a real remembrance of, of the dead. And I worry about this a lot, that we've lost so many people. And I don't know that as a country we processed it properly. Um, uh, it, it is, it, it, I worry about this. I worry about the long-term impact in the country that we don't process the death of this many people of our fellow citizens. Yeah, no, that's, you know, when during Biden's inauguration, um, there was a sort of a memorial set up on the reflect along the reflecting pool, those yeah. 400 lights that were meant to symbolize the 400,000 people we lost up to then. Um, that was the first time we had had anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. So I, you need those things because you need reinforcement that you're living in a country that has commonalities. Yeah. 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 No, I think, I think that's very important. Um, you know, Ron Irving asked questions. This is unrelated to COVID, but I, I, I <laughs> thought, can you tell us more about Walter Hussman and his impact on Arkansas journalism politics? There's a lot of great Arkansas journalists over the years. It was, um, yeah. Was a, oh, there was a guy at the Democrat Gazette who was a political guy whose name I'm now escaping me. But for, for you, who, how does that, someone like Walter Hussman, other Arkansas journalists, how does that, how did that impact your career as a journalist? Uh, well, I have to, so I don't really know much about Walter Hussman. I went to college in Pennsylvania and I left, so I left when I was 18 and I didn't know I wanted to be a journalist when I left. So I didn't really kind of get involved in that politics world until um I came back again Arkansas has a long history of having very good newspapers um and the Democrat Gazette did something in smart in the beginning of charging people for online access so it survived now I I do believe I'll have to check this but Walter Hussman may have been responsible for the demise of the Gazette the Democrat and the Gazette used to be two separate papers and so Little Rock's not a big city it's less than 150,000 people, I think now I'll have to know 200,000 people about. Um, and it had two very good rival newspapers for most of the time that I was growing up. So that's, that's huge, you know? Um, and we still have uh, Arkansas business journals, well-regarded the Democratic Gazette still well-regarded. Um, but this is not something that a world I've really been a part of, unfortunately. How do people get their information? I mean, is it mostly from Fox News, mostly from online, from the Internet? Is that how people, you know, are getting information about COVID, about politics in general? Fox News and Facebook and from their friends. So even if they don't watch Fox News, they know somebody who does, who tells them things. So, yeah. You know, I recently, and I can't explain why, just by chance, I've been looking more at, like, the Facebook news feed, and it's awful. It's just terrible. It's all just kind of gossipy, like, propaganda. I mean, it's a lot of Fox News stories on there. It, it's really terrible. And I, and I do, I've always thought for a long time, just from my own Facebook feed, that people get really shitty information from Facebook. And, you know, they get sort of these ridiculous, these random stories they find and then they, they, and they 
you know, post them and people respond to them. I mean, I feel like if you'll blame Fox News, I feel like we don't give enough, we don't, we don't heap enough abuse on Facebook for just pushing all these ridiculous, you know, dis, misinformation stories out there. Yeah, um, I'm I'm still on Facebook because it's where we get our local numbers. It's where we get our local news. Um, and uh, it's also, I mean, it's also a big fundraiser for nonprofits, and I help some some of the ones here. But um, but one of the things that I think Facebook shows us is how people do not. So I, I should have said about Walter Hussman, it's very bad that he helped destroy the Gazette. The Gazette was a beloved paper. <laughs> he, he has a long history, apparently, of being, I don't know, behind the scenes being evil, I guess. I don't know. I should probably shouldn't say that. But um, but uh, but Facebook shows you that people believe memes with no source information. So there's just this, like, factoid that they post and say, look, oh, you know, ivermectin does help save people with COVID. Ivermectin is one of the medicines that they're using. Um, but there's no link and there's no note about where, where that information has come from that they're, that they're sharing as like proof of something. They can't spot fake news. They don't know anything about how to evaluate sources. And so these things just hang around and share. And it's very alarming to me, um, the lack of basic literacy to some degree and also basic scientific literacy. And these are, I'm not saying that they're ignorant, stupid people. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that like, there's just a level of processing information that is missing. I think that's a really big, a big part of it. I think that we, we sort of, we missed that point that, that people are often fed misinformation, don't know how to process it properly. They're hanging from their friends, people they trust. I mean, I think that there isn't, you know, I have a lot of sympathy actually for people who, who, who have gotten sick because they haven't gotten vaccinated in, in a, if they've been told lie after lie after lie, they're going to believe it. And I have a lot more, yeah. a, a lot more anger toward the people who have spread those lies. And I want to just say one thing before I'm, I have to go. I think we should, we should finish up here, but I want to make, let's say one last thing relevant to this conversation. There's this great story in the New York Times today about apparently Trump's efforts to get the Department of Justice to, uh, declare the election corrupt so that he could become, remain president. And he's apparently there's a, a conference call with a bunch of folks at DOJ trying to kind of convince him of this. And they all were telling him this isn't true. There was no fraud, blah, blah, blah. And there's a quote that apparently he said to them, you guys may not be following the internet the way I do. This is what Trump said to these DOJ officials. And I think that is literally the greatest quote that defines our political and cultural moment that I've ever heard. I mean, it's fantastic. It's like, you don't follow the internet the way that I do. Like you don't read the same stuff that I'm seeing from crazy people, thus you're missing the biggest story. That that is that defines I think who we are right now as a people. I think I think so, and I think people miss out on their sort of analysis and understanding of where we are out as a country without taking that into account. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And so I, that, I think that's like really important the way that misinformation spreads very quickly and there's no countering it. You know, that's right. That's right. And there's a whole world out there that you and I probably don't even know about, but people are having a totally different conversation than the more we're having right now. The opposite. And we have no access to, you have probably more access than I do, but, but in general, we don't really see or or hear the same way. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a problem. (laughs) It's a problem. That's for our audition of the day. We've been on for an hour and I think we've done, we've, we've hit a lot of stuff today. This was so much fun. Monica, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Such a fascinating conversation. I loved your article. I hope everyone reads it uh, and reads your, goes to your, to your uh, welcome home, substack.com. Is that what it's called? Yes. Goes yeah. to substack, read, buys and reads your book uh, when it comes out. And I certainly hope that when it comes out, you'll come back on. We'll talk about that because I, I just really enjoyed the conversation. This was great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank and you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you everyone for joining us today. And I will see you again next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.